Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. Willow Walsh. And Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage with those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe. <clears throat> Two excellent ways to feel good. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And Roots is open for business at 108 East Lincolnway in Valparaiso. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's Flight Paths Initiative titled Residential Segregation and Racial Inequality and Strike at Frable. So today on the show, as per usual, we'll go ahead and play the stories and pause in between each to have a conversation about what the storytellers experience. So Al, do you want to talk a little bit about flight paths and how these stories sort of fit into that project for the Welcome Project? Sure. Um, If you have listened to the show before, you've heard us describe this initiative, Um, but we started it um, in 2015. And it came out of a desire to place our storytellers in a context, a broader social and political context, so we could better um, hear and understand uh, their experiences. So Flight Paths is attempting to look at the history of Gary, specifically during the 1960s and 70s, during the rise of the civil rights era, and then the backlash that followed from that with white flight and business flight from Gary, as well as um, the deindustrialization of the mills. And that's a, a national story as well. It's not just a story of Gary. Today, uh, we're actually going to be hearing from a historian Um, which is a bit unusual for us on this show. We usually just listen to our storytellers, Mm -hmm. but we thought it would be interesting to give listeners some of that historical context directly. And then the second story we play, people can hear it in that that broader context. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know how listeners will feel about that. And if they wanted to let us know how they feel about it, how would they do that, Willow? Um, they can visit our Facebook page or they could email us at welcomeprojectradio at gmail.com. Awesome. So should we go ahead and dive into the, the yeah. historian? So this first one is titled Residential Segregation and Racial Inequality. So if people want to understand uh, 21st century Gary, I think they really have to go all the way back to the beginning. Gary's not some kind of a cosmopolitan place in the sense of, you know, it's not uh, like walking around Manhattan in... Uh, the 21st century or something where you just kind of run into everybody, uh, anybody and everybody, wherever you walk. Gary was from the very beginning, like Chicago, like Detroit, like so many other northern cities that are incorporating for the first time large numbers of uh, workers of color, especially black workers, um, rigidly segregated. And and um, segregation is different than in the South. You know, oftentimes in the South, black people and white people live alongside one another, but it's very difficult for um, black persons to advance up the, the social ladder. In the North, sometimes there are actually some employment opportunities for, for black workers and, and in some cases unions that include black workers. There's a lot of racism too. Um, but in, in Gary, as in Chicago and these other urban centers in the North, residential segregation is, is quite rigid. Black workers are really cordoned off into a very small part of the center of the city. Um, and all around them, you would have had ethnic white neighborhoods that 
fiercely defended their borders against the possibility of black residential mobility. Until the 1940s um, in Gary and in many northern cities, you have these uh, restrictive covenants, which are actually legal documents that are in many cases included in, in deeds and that dictate who can live in a particular part of, of the city. These documents, restrictive covenants, are used to sort of um, preserve the quote-unquote racial integrity of, of neighborhoods. Um, but even, you know, after those are declared illegal by the Supreme Court in 1948, segregation is preserved in the North. This is not just a Southern phenomenon, but it's preserved in the North um, in a variety of other ways, through um, custom, through violence, through redlining, and through the knowledge that, you know, if you were black and you tried to buy a home in a, in a white neighborhood, um, th- it would be very difficult to do so. So redlining is one of the, the real engines of racial inequality in the mid-20th century United States, partly because so many white Americans be, you know, came into the middle class through the housing market, and they did so especially through the, the GI Bill. The GI Bill was this um, piece of, of legislation passed by the federal government that effectively gave a whole generation of veterans the opportunity to get homes very cheap with FHA, Federal Housing Administration, mortgages, and to get uh, free college education. And the legislation itself was actually race-neutral, colorblind legislation that says nothing about race. You'd think, oh, well, maybe black veterans could take advantage of this legislation as well. But the GI Bill, which really fueled the rise of the white middle class, also was an engine of racial inequality, partly because it, it was, in fact, impossible for black veterans to go to white colleges in the late 1940s and 1950s. Historically, black colleges and universities were uh, packed to the gills with black veterans. They could not meet the demand. And meanwhile, black veterans found themselves effectively unable to take advantage of the GI Bill's um, offer of a cheap FHA-subsidized mortgage. This is because of the practice of redlining. Redlining is named for these maps that were used in conjunction with FHA mortgages. So if you pull up one of these maps, you'll see uh, neighborhoods that are color-coded yellow, green, blue, and red. Red were the highest risk, what the, what the Homeowners Loan Corporation thought at least were the highest risk neighborhoods, and those were neighborhoods that had high concentrations of persons of color. Fundamentally, at some level, the, the grading system governing these maps, it reflects kind of just a racist point of view on the mid-20th century American city, where um, in many ways race is being taken as a proxy for risk. If you're an African-American veteran who's going into a bank to try to take advantage of the GI Bill, the banker would say, oh, where's the home you'd like to buy? Oh, it's in this neighborhood. Let me pull up my map. You know, look on the map if they didn't already know. And that neighborhood's graded red, which means that it, it's considered too risky for them to give you an FHA subsidized loan. And so this, what, what this meant, redlining meant, was that black Americans were effectively boxed out of the housing market and black residents find themselves crammed into very tight quarters and are paying often an incredible premium. They're often paying vastly more for rent in a kind of very challenging neighborhood than they would pay for a mortgage in a middle-class white neighborhood. So this is one of the sort of central obstacles for black Americans seeking to kind of make their way in post-war America. This is Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs, and you're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And on today's show, um, we're playing some 
Stories from our Flight Paths Initiative, beginning here with um, historian Dr. Heath Carter, uh, who was a instrumental for us on this project and a, a colleague of ours at Valparaiso University before he um, moved on to the uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, where he is currently teaching now. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, like, how, how would we like to dig into the historical context? Because there's so much here, mm-hmm. and um, we might need to repeat parts of the, yeah, yeah. the transcript for our listeners just because it's it's pretty dense. Maybe we should start off with like the different ways in which the North made it hard for Black Americans to be as successful as their white counterparts. He does talk about it being different between the North and South, so I think that's something interesting mm-hmm. to dig into because I think like sometimes we like to think that the South is just vastly worse like racism wise so i think it's interesting to talk about how it plays out in the north then also he mentions like redlining and the gi bill things that essentially were meant to across the board help people move up well not redlining not redlining. but (laughs) the the gi bill is like across the bill meant to help people move up but like in what ways did and didn't that happen for people i i mean i I don't think we should necessarily start with the GI Bill, but I, I just do have to say that it strikes me every time I listen to this story that it is, he says, designed to be race neutral and on its face it is. But when you put that in the context and and the interrelationship it has with other policies and practices, suddenly it's not race neutral anymore. So it just mm-hmm. seems like one of those examples of how people maybe I should say mostly white Americans, but not only, engage and look at pieces of legislation. And they're like, there's nothing wrong with this, but they're not necessarily thinking about it in its context and how it interacts with other pieces of legislation. So it's just a good reminder Mm -hmm. that we really have to look at everything in its context to really understand its impact. Yeah. Well, and it also really reminds me of like frequent statements of neutrality is not necessarily your friend, right? So mm. like this is an instance where like, yeah, language specifically about black Americans and black veterans in the bill probably would have been helpful. So not necessarily equality, but maybe even naming that there's been inequity mm-hmm. that this bill will try to mm-hmm. in some way address. Yeah, or this neutra- yeah this is the neutrality of it did nothing, you know? Yeah. So this, it would have been good to name the thing and then address the thing. Mm -hmm. Let's walk backwards to, um, the difference between the South and the North. And maybe some of our listeners have already had reason to think about this for themselves, but how do you see the historian here pointing out some of the differences for our country in terms of what opportunities were and weren't available to black Americans? Well, the thing, one of the things that stood out for me was he was talking about how in the South, black and white families could live in the same, like next to each other, but like black people wouldn't necessarily have the same social mobility to move up that ladder in the same way. But in the North, there are more working opportunities, but the residential segregation is so much more pronounced. And that was surprising to me because I think just growing up here, I think I sort of expected residential segregation to just be, I don't know, like permeating across the U.S., Mm. but like how it doesn't necessarily play out in the South. I don't know. So I think that's interesting. Like, how are we creating a form of racism here in the North that we're not really talking about in the same way that we're talking about the South? Yeah, I think the the fact of Jim Crow laws, 
I mean, maybe I'd pose this as a thesis since I haven't studied it, is that in the South, the Jim Crow laws performed the role of segregation. So there could be more, like you might share more. I don't even want to say public spaces because I know Jim Crow laws like determine how you share public spaces, which is also to desegregate those public spaces, right? So blacks are in the balcony for movies or something like that. Or if you're walking on a sidewalk, there's laws about um, how black Americans would have to step off the sidewalk when white Americans are, you know, crossing paths with them. Um, I I think the other thing that's interesting here is what what's being talked about a lot today or named again today is that so much of wealth is generated in America through home ownership. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I actually don't I'm a, redlining would have been in effect in the South too. So I, I don't necessarily know that black Americans in the South were homeowners in a way that was different than black Americans in the North maybe, but just really realizing that even if there's not these blatant Jim Crow laws, uh, announcing yeah. <laughs> the racism in the North, um, that the impact of the racism that, uh, that is here has these, uh, not just like um, impact at the time, but it's like this ongoing impact that um, black Americans today are just really seeing the effects of. And not just black Americans. Um, I should remind listeners that when we are talking about Gary at the Welcome Project, we often fall into talking about black and white, which in large part is because some of the predominant residents when the city was founded would have been European immigrants, Eastern European immigrants, and then um, Black Americans being drawn up from the South during their great migration. Um, But there is a presence of Latinx uh, people in the region, in East Chicago, and even in Gary, and they would have been impacted by this too. And even actually ethnic immigrants would have been impacted by redlining. There's a category for foreigners. And so if you're if you're a if your home tongue is not English because you're a recent arrival immigrant, then you're also considered in the risk category. You usually fall in the yellow category, which is like the step up from red lining. Mm. But they were impacted economically, um, just not in exactly the same way as Black Americans were. You're listening to WVLP 103.1 FM and online at WVLP.org. We are in the middle of the spring pledge drive for WVLP. And so we just wanted to take a minute today to thank you for listening and to remind you, like, there's a lot of value in this community-supported radio. We have a lot of volunteers that make this station run uh, for which we are very grateful but there are still costs to running this kind of station and one of the things that I wanted people to know about if they didn't is that WVLP the station is also connected to um, Project Neighbors which is a nonprofit organization that's been active here in Valparaiso really since the 60s and 70s they they called themselves the Valparaiso Builders Association at that time But as they grew the kinds of programs they generated and supported, um, they changed their name to Project Neighbors. And I I think there's a lot in that name, Project Neighbors, that I think is also the value of community-supported radio, just that this is a chance for really at a local level 
neighbors to come in, be in front of the microphone. I mean, we're Reagan and Willow and I are all neighbors to each other (laughs) and we're neighbors to the other people who are hosts on this radio show and we're neighbors to a lot of our listeners. Uh, And just having that voice um, of more intimate relationships or proximate relationships, I think is valuable to support. Even if you listen to us, for example, on our podcast, uh, which means you might not be living anywhere near Valparaiso, Indiana. Um, but supporting the radio station um, is still could be something that aligns with other values you have about being a good neighbor in your own town. So we would really welcome your support. And during this pledge drive, if you become a WVLP sustaining member uh, at the $5 a month level, you get uh, Paul Schreiner, who does our theme music, his couch music CD um, as your gift. And if you pledge at $10 a month, uh, you get a WVLP t-shirt. And for $15 a month, you get both. So um, taking home the swag with just $15 a month, which is just which is just 50 cents a day. So if you're interested in becoming a sustaining member or even making a one-time donation, you can go to WVLP.org backslash support to make your sustaining pledge and become a member today. And we'd be really grateful for that. And we is Allison Schutte, Willa Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. Uh, this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. Today we're listening to stories from our Flight Paths Initiative, including this first um, account from historian Dr. Heath Carter about how the city was born in segregation and how that mirrored some of the nation's policies of um, residential uh, segregation and racial inequality. So kind of been just talking recently about the difference between the North and the South. Um, What are some of the other uh, practices and policies that the historian mentions? And maybe we can dig into one at a time. Mm -hmm. Is there one, um, Reagan, that really stands out to you or that you want to call attention to? Yeah, I mean, aside from um, the redlining, part of the GI Bill was cheap or even, like, free college. And, like, the discussion about how, like, black veterans literally were not allowed to go to white colleges Mm -hmm. and the system, the quote-unquote, like, segregated alternative system for them, which was HBC's historical black colleges, which are wonderful, like, literally could not keep up with the volume of people. Yeah. Because historically black colleges were also severely limited in like the scopes that they were allowed to exist. That's insane. (laughs) That's insane. Yeah. To want to go to college and not be able to, Mm -hmm. to find those place that you can go and study. Well, and Mm -hmm. it just, it just speaks to how big stuff like Jim Crow and segregation Mm -hmm. and redlining is. It's not just, well, it really sucks. I can't get a house in this particular thing but if i really like finesse it i can figure something out it's everything it is like every facet of life that is restricted and it is like almost every system that is restricted like individual merit like really does not matter it does not matter that these people also served Mm -hmm. just like the other people served and also again within the u.s military like from what i understand at least for the vietnam war black americans were disproportionately drafted Mm. Partially because some of the draft rules are like, oh, if you're in college already, yeah. Um, oh, if you are doing X, Y, or Z, oh, if you have enough money, you don't have to get drafted, which disproportionately impacts people of color. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of factors going in here, making sure that 
people of color are forced to serve often being served like serving in worse conditions than their white Mm -hmm. counterparts and then coming home to this Mm -hmm. i think it sucks so much like on an individual level like first of all it's like okay i'm serving overseas for my country and then i'm expecting to get like at least anything when i come home and then it's like here's this bill that I can't even take advantage of. So it's like, that's really terrible on an individual level. But like when we back up and it's like on a, on a systematic level, I don't know, I just see this sort of, it's like, I think what people don't understand, it's like, okay, so some people are getting a leg up, like white veterans taking advantage of the GI Bill coming home. Like uh, Dr. Carter mentions, you know, this is how so many white Americans actually were able to enter the middle class because they were able to take advantage of the college degree. They were able to take advantage of the FHA mortgage. And so it's like you're getting an education, you're getting a house. Meanwhile, like if you're black and coming home from the war and you're not getting into college, maybe you're not going to get that management position. Right. You're not going to have that house in a white suburb that's going to be worth, you know, a lot more in the years to come. So it's like you're getting these sort of like these slights that are like you're not going to make as much money. Your your equity isn't going to be worth as much. And so I see that playing out today and sort in this area. You know, we have Gary versus Valpo. We have like, you know, you go downtown, all the stores are built up. There's these giant suburbs here in Valparaiso. And then you go to Gary and there's a lot of empty storefronts. There's not as many like large corporations that are planting roots there. There's not as many jobs. You know, it's just like it's this isn't something that's so isolated to the 40s. And I think that's mm-hmm. just the important part to remember. Like, while, yes, it did suck for individuals in the 40s, this isn't something that just magically went away. This is something that's like still affecting people's equity and ability to move up today. Because if you're, you know, taking a slice way back when... You're not really building up as much today. I don't know. That's the part that really gets me. Yeah, and then there's all the assumptions and stereotypes people make about a city like Gary because they look at the fact that there's the roads aren't being repaired or the storefronts are empty or there's boarded up windows in neighborhoods and they start making assumptions about um, like the, the residents of the city or the government in the city as opposed to really looking at how what they're noticing is actually not to do with the residents of the city. It has to do actually with these larger practices and policies, but then also residents of other cities who removed themselves from Gary Mm -hmm. um, and don't necessarily see themselves any longer as responsible for the city or how, or the state of the city. Um, So there's that social cost that Mm -hmm. comes with the actual economic costs and stuff too. Yeah. We, we kind of jumped past, um, oh, I just lost the word, restrictive covenants, mm-hmm. which is technically something that we've won. Like, you can no longer have restrictive covenants, but later the, uh, like, later Dr. Carter uses the, the term custom as another way that segregation is maintained. And I, I kind of, again, maybe another thesis I would put forward is that if restrictive covenants are no longer possible legally, I think custom often acts that way anyway. So um, for those who don't know, like a restrictive covenant is like written into the, the owner's deed um, is like who is allowed or not allowed to buy that property. And so it was a way that white Americans made sure that when they were selling 
their homes. It wasn't going to end up being owned by a black family to preserve the integrity of the neighborhood. And um, I think because we still live in a society where white supremacy is conditioning our understanding of each other, um, like we still often operate on those ideas about like who's going to buy my home next or what will my neighbors think if I sell to dot, dot, dot. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's really important to name as something that has still, again, this ongoing impact, even though legally it's no longer allowed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is getting really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and we definitely are talking about the things that, um, produced suffering in the lives of so many people. And so, yeah, that can, that can feel, it's important to name, but I also know that it can skew the life of, it can skew our impressions of the lives of individuals. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that we're going to be listening to a storyteller in our second hour of the show, because, you know, any of us who are in difficult circumstances and situations through our relationships with each other, we find ways to celebrate our lives and live with the dignity that we name and claim. So I I do worry sometimes about our project when we focus on all of the traumas and tragedies of racism, (laughs) that it, it might mislead people to think of black Americans as victims when I think that's the farthest thing from the truth. Mm. Um, does that resonate for you at all land with you at all? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I always feel weird about the victim word, not in a, I don't think you used it badly. I'm not saying you are, but just like, I don't know. Sometimes bad things happen and you are the victim of the thing, but that doesn't mean that's all you are. And I think that's Mm. where the problem comes again, especially as like a leftist white American and something that I need to keep in mind is like, nobody is purely anything, especially not a victim. So you have a a very good point you are making. Yeah. Any final thoughts from the story that we didn't touch on? Oh, you didn't really talk about redlining very much. And when did you all like learn about redlining? Is that, newer information to you sometimes when we play the story or or when I play it to students on my campus who are usually like somewhere between 18 and 21 not always um they're often like oh like I'd never heard of that and I certainly was in that boat for sure (laughs) Mm -hmm. I heard about it the first time you played a story in front of me that's when I heard yeah so I was probably like 19 yeah I was in high school, but it's not because my history teachers were <laughs> particularly interested in discussing those things. I um, am a big reader and I like history. So that was something I stumbled upon just because I liked to read. Wasn't always maybe the funnest reading material in <laughs> retrospect, but you know, I, I, I did learn things. So I think we should um, unpack redlining a little bit after the top of the hour and before we play our storyteller. But I do want to remind listeners that this is WVLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. And we rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word 
that ongoing volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting the station by visiting our website, wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax deductible. We are in the middle of a pledge drive. And we here at uh, Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio would sure appreciate it. So I'm Allison Schutte here with Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And we left off our conversation about redlining. I'm curious... How would you put that in your own words, what it is? Mm-hmm. Like, how well do you feel like you kind of grasp it? And maybe we can add some details to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go first, because I feel like mine's probably the least well-rounded. Okay, so my understanding of redlining, when I picture that in my mind, I see, like, a city map, and I see, like, certain neighborhoods, like, essentially highlighted in either, like, I don't know, like, green, yellow, or red, Or blue. Or blue. And so in my mind, that's like they're either like for redlining, that means like black Americans or like other like we talked about like foreigners coming into Gary and like setting down roots there. So like those folks can't not only can't buy houses in certain areas, but also that they're paying a larger price for being in the areas that they are allowed to be in so like if you can only be in the red line area not only can you only be there but also it's going to be more expensive i don't know that's my understanding very surface that's a good start (laughs) and i'll just say to listeners who would like to see a map of gary and its redlining they can go to the website mapping inequality Um, If you just Google mapping inequality, the URL for that will come up. And then it's a national map. So you can click on any number of cities to see their redlining map, including Gary's. And so what you've kind of imagined visually, like people could actually look up and see if they wanted to. Do you want to add anything, Reagan, to Willow's? (laughs) Yeah, it was like. I, don't know, I want I want to say I think of it almost as like a rating system because mm-hmm. that's just makes sense mm-hmm. to my brain. So depending on like your race and where you live, you get like a number on this scale, both as an individual and like the neighborhood. And like that determines if it's like a red neighborhood or whatever. But also um, it's something that was not only like systemically legally upheld, but you have which this still holds today. Um oftentimes the black and Latino neighborhood is the city center. And then we have ethnically white, or I think it's a little different now. I think there's more different like ethnic neighborhoods basically surrounding that. And um, Dr. Carter talks about how like fiercely people would protect Mm -hmm. their things. And I think we had a story here where people were talking about burning their houses down Mm -hmm. when they were, Mm -hmm. yeah, when they are in ethnically white, Eth- not ethically, ethnically, <laughs> pardon, ethnically white area, like, because they also, like, let's say they were, like, yellow, they also have a very limited scope, and on either mm-hmm. side of them are different ethnically white neighborhoods, so, like, we have, like, Italian people and Polish people, and they both want to have their own space and need to have their own space, but their space is also limited, mm-hmm. but it is slightly nicer than the redlined areas, so they are also trying to keep black and Latino people out of their neighborhood so they can keep their neighborhood like so they set it up so like all of the poor and needy people are in one spot desperately fighting over like the same scraps and fighting to maintain their um rating yes right so that they don't drop to a lower rating where it becomes harder for them to get loans not just to buy houses but to fix up houses as well 
I mean, I think one of the things that Dr. Carter mentions is uh, that the maps reflect a racist point of view where race is a proxy for risk. And I think that's, I mean, Dr. Carter is speaking in very plain spoken English, but Mm -hmm. that's also like packed. That's like a little dense, like what does proxy mean and stuff like that. What a concept, like dear God, like if you've never ever encountered that, like what does that even mean? Like why would somebody (laughs) do that? You know, like there's so many... I don't, that's where I would go. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, one of the things that I am noting is like the idea that oh, these maps, if they're based on risk, you can kind of imagine that there's like a housing inspector that's going around during the 1930s and like looking, examining the property and seeing which ones are like stable and which ones are in need of like getting fixed up and you can look at other aspects of a neighborhood like whether there's grocery stores in the neighborhood and things like that and you're going to base your um rating of the neighborhood on the quality of the houses and the quality of the services in the neighborhood and so it's objective right Mm -hmm. wrong (laughs) in this case people were seeing race first and then Mm -hmm. saying this cannot be um, or ethnic, like or national origin, and mm-hmm. saying, "Oh, this can't be a neighborhood where these residents are going to be able to pay their mortgages. They're they're not capable of that." Or um, maybe there's assumptions about the quality of their paychecks too, which is mm-hmm. crazy for Gary because during this time that we're talking, like U.S. Steel would have been, um, especially after World War II, booming. So the paychecks were there, mm-hmm. but how far could they be? useful in investments in, um, for Mm. black Americans and maybe to some degree for the ethnic, uh, white Americans too. Um, so I just think it's really important to name out loud that racism Mm -hmm. was used in the construction of the maps. And then that further exasperated and entrenched racism, like on the ground. No, no, go ahead. It also is just the thing, which again, continues into today of like, black people people of color in general but black people in particular in america like oh they are inherently violent they are inherently they do not care for their homes like that is like the kind of mentality also that is going behind this that is what it means to say Mm -hmm. that like race is proximity to uh risk is proxy to risk because people of color again particularly black people are somehow more dangerous than white americans yeah, it's like this assumptions about moral moral character, yes. right? And that somehow black Americans don't share the same moral standards of the middle class white American Protestant mm-hmm. or Catholic. That is just insane people. We just need, <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't have to say that, but mm-hmm. it is wrong. Um, and I think, should we use this as a transition so we can hear from a storyteller who demonstrates <laughs> like how flawed um, white American thinking has been? Um, did you want to say anything, Willow, before I play the story? or? Um, yeah, this one is titled The Strike at Frabel. I was totally shocked when I moved to Gary for the simple reason I had not encountered some of the prejudice in Detroit in school that I encountered here. It was a shocker. I don't think I really realized how serious race relations were until the strike at Fable. 
that was a total shocker to me. 1943 or 1944, somewhere in there, I get the, I'm not quite sure about the date. We come out of school one day, the next day when we went back, all the other kids were gone. We were the only ones showing up. They let us come to school. We stayed in school that entire time until Frank Sinatra, and he wanted to talk to the children at the school. I don't think they let him come to the school. They had him go to Memorial Auditorium. The way they had it arranged, they had all of the other schools come in, and the last ones to arrive were Roosevelt, then Frable. The downstairs was already filled with the other schools. The first thing that we thought was, hey, we're involved. How come we're not sitting down there? That's the first thing that went through our mind. We didn't think about the prejudice or anything to it, but that was the first thing that went through our mind. How come we got to sit up here? It was about a couple of weeks that it, it, it lasted. They were really determined that we were going to get kicked out and sent to Roosevelt. Like I said, we were in school one day. The next day when we went back, the entire white population of students were gone. And we were puzzled because there weren't any fights. There might have been a few words exchanged at times or something like that. But we basically uh, went to school with them and left and went home. When we realized why they were on strike, kind of, we, we got angry about it. I would have liked to have gone up and <laughs> shake somebody and said, hey, <laughs> my blood is the same red as yours, so what's the matter with you? That's the way I felt at that time, but that wasn't going to solve anything. I never realized that even some of the teachers felt the same way about us attending the schools. Some of them let us know right away, which I appreciated after I got older because at least they told me where they, how they felt so I understand what their reaction to me was and I could handle that. We were angry, but the first thing our parents said to us when they knew about that strike, don't go in there and act foolish. We were supposed to go there and act like we were proper <laughs> young ladies and young men. So we did not want to really hit somebody upside the head and say, behave yourself, because I'm, you know, just as good as you are. But that was not allowed. We were not allowed to do that. I wouldn't have been able to sit down for a week. <laughs> this is Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs, and this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio here at WVLP.org and WVLP 103.1 FM. You have just heard from one of our storytellers in the Flight Paths Initiative talking about her experience of the strike at Frable School in Gary during the 1940s. And I wanted to add just a little bit of context for our listeners. If you're not from the region or if you don't know Gary's history very well, Roosevelt, uh, which is another school that she names in the story, was an all-black school. It was, it was built to be an all-black school uh, so that the 
other schools could stay uh, white only. Although I know it's complicated because a lot of black Gary residents really had a powerful experience of education because it was all black. So anyway, Frable, it was um, the storyteller tells us in another part of her interview, the only integrated school in Gary. And um, she shares that her mom had to go to a different school district to get um, the storyteller herself transferred from Roosevelt to Frable. That's how our storyteller ended up being able or being in attendance at Frable and therefore experiencing the strike that happened. I'm wondering for you, you know, I was present for the storyteller's entire interview. Like, mm. does the, uh, does like, why do you understand why the students are striking and which students are striking at Frable? Like how does that make sense? Like, could you name kind of just what happened? Yeah. I mean, my impression is that it's like the white students that are on strike and the strike is that they're not going to attend the integrated school. They just didn't show up at one point. Yeah. Okay. Did you get that same? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a, a sense of why <laughs> Frank Sinatra is in town? <laughs> I don't, he's vibing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why Frank Sinatra is there. No. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because it, like, when I think about, like, performers at that time, like, it's interesting to me that the audience, like, are students, but they're, like, they have white and black students there, too. Like, in, in my mind, isn't it like it was mostly um, segregated, or is that mostly in the South? But, like, so... For performances, or what? Yeah, yeah, like, for people who are allowed to, like, be in the audience for performances, well, but also, Frank Sinatra, he was Rat Pack, right? Like, that was his whole jam. I, the, my biggest Frank Sinatra fact is that he was married to Mia Farrow, and he got divorced when she did Rosemary's Baby. Anyway. Um, <laughs> probably a separate story. Probably a separate story. Um, but, I mean, he did jazz, right? And he's, like, a jazzy-styled mm-hmm. music. So, like, I don't know. He is, like, especially at the time, like, would have been a white man in, a, like, a popular, like, black genre. So, like, that... That either means maybe he was trying to be cool or he was being very not cool, from what I understand. Well, at least in this under in this case, it was an intentional visit to Gary to talk to the students. It wasn't okay. even just to give a performance. Like he was coming to urge the white students to recognize and um, embrace the fact that they can and would benefit from attending school in integrated schools with their black uh, neighbors. So it was a political stance that he was taking at the time. And I think it's interesting that the storytellers like, well, why wasn't he allowed to come to Frayball, the school where the strike was happening? Mm -hmm. Instead, they moved him to the auditorium, which might be about space. It sounds like they bust in all of the kids from all of the schools. So that makes a certain amount of sense. Like you need a space that can hold all the students. But then she notes the irony that the two schools that are feeling the impact of the strike are bust in last and then the only seating that's left is in the back. So they don't even have access to this celebrity that came to honor their courage and their wherewithal. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad the answer was Frank Sinatra was being cool. <laughs> <laughs> Should we back up to why the storyteller says it was a shocker that when she arrived at Gary, because she came from uh, she came from Detroit first. Did you understand 
why it was such a shock to arrive in Gary. Yeah, well, it sounds like like from where she came in Detroit that it was already integrated, like the school that she was coming from was already integrated, so it was maybe shocking to her that Frable was the only integrated school in the area. Maybe that was just like the default understanding for her. And so, like, we learn in other stories that her mom had transferred her from Horace Mann over to Frable um, because it was important for her to go to that um, integrated school. But, yeah, it was a different experience here in Gary. I think I just assumed there was more tension in Gary than there was Detroit. Because I know Detroit also has a very fraught racial history. Um, I always think of that, um, like, the Ford plant was there and there was that riot on the beach where, like, white people just started attacking black Americans that are trying to go to the beach because they were on, like, the white side of the beach. So I don't know, maybe, if she was past that point as a child or... I don't know. So maybe there, there was more tension coming to Gary. I don't know. Yeah, and or um, maybe protected based on the neighborhood that she lived in in Detroit. Yeah. Um, because Detroit would also have its redlining mm-hmm. and its segregated parts of the city. But for the storyteller, at least, she says, I had not encountered some of the prejudice in Detroit in mm-hmm. school that I encountered here. So either because the tension's higher in Gary for whatever reason, or something about the neighborhoods and the communities that she was a part of in Detroit protected her a little bit from some of that prejudice. Yeah, and I'm wondering like, what stands out to you from how the storyteller feels impacted by the strike, some of her reactions that stand out to you? Yeah, I, lo- I, I really enjoyed her reaction. Like, like saying that, you know, we just went back to school and the entire white population of students were gone. And, you know, we were puzzled because it's not like anything happened. They just sort of left. And I don't know. I think that's interesting because I think you like my frame of reference for like maybe 40s, 50s, maybe more like 60s, but like the civil rights, like I, I see like in my like the imagery in my brain is like activism, protesting. And so it's interesting to me that she was like sort of puzzled that like white students all of a sudden didn't come to school. But I think it's sort of interesting in practice here too, because it's like she's saying that there weren't any fights or anything that really led up to it. Like the students were just sort of like gone one day. And then she's sort of like coming to terms with it by like, you know, we go to the same school, we do our work, we go home. We're just like you. I don't understand what the issue is. And so I think that, so that kind of becomes interesting I don't know, in reflection, because in my mind, I'm thinking, like, wouldn't it be, like, the first thing on your mind? Because everybody's, like, an activist back then or something like that. But no, it's just, like, in practice, it's just, like, these, like, weird small things that happened where, like, I'm assuming a bunch of white parents probably got together and pulled their kids out of school. But and it's interesting to consider, was it the white parents or was it the white students? Yeah. And the parents were backing it up. I don't know. I'd have yeah. to fact check that. Um yeah, but I also think you might be over, I don't know if overestimating is the right word, activism. I think in the 40s, this is like, this is like even as we're entering World War II, if our storyteller's memory serves her correctly, 43, 44, I, I think some of the activism you're thinking about might be civil rights era, like 60s, 60s, yeah. 70s. Um, and and not that civil rights activism wasn't happening at this time. I think of like the organizations like the NAACP, but a lot of it was probably happening more like in the legal system or like in 
churches organizing. Um, so I don't know that there's that like fist raised out on Mm -hmm. the street. Mm -hmm. So then the white students action actually stands out even a little bit more. Yeah. We're still pretty far from Brown versus the board, right? Aren't we? Um, at this I don't point know. Time. Let's check. Because I think that was more of a later type. But I know that was... 1952. Yeah. But that's one of the first big steps is that um, Brown versus Board of Education is really like often credited as like a kickstart point. Um, so we've got some time before we get <laughs> yeah, there. And actually, 52 <laughs> is just like when that whole case starts. It's not mm-hmm. even decided until 54. Yep. And then Loving versus Virginia is in like I think the 60s and that's so the interracial interracial marriage. marriage so I think that's it's not a capstone but that's another like touch point so we've, we've got time before those things happen yeah yeah so you know also she's a baby that's true she's not aware of anything she's a child well <laughs> I don't know come on teenagers are not babies true <laughs> no or even even middle schoolers aren't babies but um I mean no. She's old enough to say, you know, I would have liked to have gone up and shaken mm-hmm. my white peers and say, my blood is the same red as yours. Like, what's the matter with you? Mm-hmm. She says that was the way I felt, but I understood that wasn't going to solve anything. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't can't be childlike if you understand that already. <laughs> you know, that's like, that's pretty wise. But yeah. what do you all make of that? That wasn't going to solve anything. Like, either what is she noticing or... This is speculation on our part, of course, but, Mm -hmm. like, why does she think it's not something that's available to her? Well, I mean, again, if we we do turn to the 60s, and mostly the 60s and, like, late 50s activism, um, specifically Black American Civil Rights Movement, that is a huge part of it, is the, you dress up appropriately, you look like a little lady or a little gentleman or an adult lady or gentleman, whatever, Um, And then you do the protest and you do it politely and you do it looking like, quote unquote, respectable. Like that was such a focal point of the civil rights movement. Again, especially like early, especially like Martin Luther King. That's such an important thing of just looking up and doing the quote unquote incorrect thing. So just sitting at a lunch counter. So like I think this is just something that black Americans were forced to be very cognizant of and have been forced to be very cognizant of for a very long time is like their image and how how close to violence and terror that white people perceive them to be whether they are or not isn't relevant you know it's how they're perceived and they have to in order to be heard oftentimes find themselves being put in the position of having to kind of be a higher person i guess yeah i i think it's interesting because we could actually say i don't know that i would attach this to white Americans' moral character, but I would attach it to white Americans' moral behavior, that if we're talking about who's violent, we're actually talking about white Americans who are racist. Mm -hmm. And that's the source of violence. It's actually not in the black community. And it seems like the respectability of dressing formal is an attempt for the black community to, like... Shake. It's like that's how the black community is trying to shake white Americans to say, like, our blood is the same. Mm -hmm. Like, we dress the same. We have the same values around what it means to be 
civil and what it means to how we want to present ourselves to our community and to the world. Like these are not, this is not something different here, but I think it's interesting that she doesn't think the logic of stating it will solve anything. Mm -hmm. Like there's a recognition even at that age that there's something blocking the ears of white Americans so that they cannot hear that. We have a little quiet here as we're like contemplating (laughs) this in the studio. And I know that that during conversations, those lulls are really important, but on the radio, it's hard to (laughs) (laughs) let them, let them linger. Mm -hmm. She says she wasn't angry about this, right? That the parents have these expectations of being proper. She calls us, she calls them proper young ladies and young men. Mm -hmm. How do you, is there anything more to say about that? What do you do with that anger? Because it's there. Mm-hmm. Like, it, she describes it at various points. And maybe, again, this is stepping away from the storyteller now. Like, this is our own speculation about anger. And how how do you hold it or manage it when you can't express it? Because, like, in this case, your parents are demanding a certain behavior from you because they know how you'll be perceived if you deviate from that. So maybe, maybe for us today, it's not parents. Uh, we're all <laughs> adults now, <laughs> but, um, I know that we've had experiences that have angered and enraged us because um, mm-hmm. we've talked about them on this show. And I wonder if there's just anything that comes to mind when you think about, we were angry, but we had learned like what is the woman who's being like questioned? What's her name? Who's she's being questioned for the Supreme Court right now? Oh, Katanji Brown. Yes. Oh my god. Yes. Okay. So that's what this makes me think of because I think about like it's, this. Literally, just feels like this is crazy to me that this story by this storyteller is happening in the '40s. But when I go on and mm. I see clips from her, like and the questions that she's getting like oh what was it some some like white dude was ted like cruz. holding up a ted it cruz. depends which one <laughs> yeah well I, I, all the clips i've been watching but like holding cruz. up a book and being like this is taught at the school district where you're on a board and you know it's like like if i was her i'd just be like so upset and like what does this have to do with like my legal judgment and it's just so frustrating and it's just it must be so angering to just have to withstand all of that but it's just like, but is she, is she like lashing out? Is she showing people that she's angry? No, like the whole time she's super composed and she's answering the questions in a tone that I think is very appropriate, which is a little like maybe sarcastic at times, but it's just like, she's very composed and very professional, but it's like, this is the sort of like presentation of herself that she has to put out there in order for people to take her seriously, to hear the words that she's saying, it wouldn't be as acceptable for her to sort of like lash out and be like, this is BS, even though it's complete BS. But it's like she has to keep that sort of composure to herself. And that's what really reminds me of this story. Like, we're still doing that today. Like, if you are not in a position of power and you have to answer to people above you, you still have to appeal to how people want information presented to them. Like I think about this with my neighbor. It's like my neighbor complains 
to our landlord all the time about different things that are like wrong with the building or something but she like lashes out and they don't hear her and they don't really care but it's like all the things she's saying are super valid and it's like yeah there shouldn't be ice in front of your door and there shouldn't be people blocking you in from going to work but it's like because she's sort of lashing out she's not saying them in a middle class appropriate yeah she's not saying it in like a way that people are wanting to receive it so they don't care and so it's like it's that sort of thing that you have to sort of like package yourself into a palpable way so that people who have the agency to make change for you can withstand it just enough to maybe allow it. They'll deem you palatable enough to deal with. Even though you're dealing with things like white students just suddenly leaving your school one day and you're just supposed to be fine with that. Or Frank Sinatra came to talk to you, but you have to be way up in the balcony and you can't even really like see him anyway. You know, it's just like, it's like that stuff does suck. And, like, for me, my instant reaction is, like, I would be so upset and I would get angry. Like, that's, you know, but it's just, like, the fact that you have to, like, I don't know, just, like, the power and composure that it takes to sort of, like, use that anchor and that force behind you and sort of, Mm -hmm. like, be composed and sort of let that fuel you. I don't know. I think that takes a lot more effort. And the fact that that's the expectation that you're going to be composed and also say your side of the story. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and I, I know we have to wrap up here because we're at the end of the hour. Um, but I, I also, I hope for this storyteller and for all of us who might have to swallow our anger or channel it in certain ways that are deemed appropriate, that we have families and communities that we're going back to <laughs> that we can mm-hmm. just like smash some pillows, <laughs> <laughs> um, metaphorically speaking, like, uh, and maybe literally too, um, so that that anger isn't just eating us up from the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always I always find it hard to leave a conversation <laughs> in the middle, but we have to head out, and we are encouraging you to check out WVLP's full schedule of shows at WVLP.org, including Morning Black, which is one of our shows that we like to recommend that takes on concerns within and about the African-American community. And you can support shows like Morning Black, like Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, by going to wvlp.org backslash support and making a one-time or a sustaining donation. Um, And during our spring pledge drive, we would definitely appreciate that. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. Visit their websites to learn more. Uh, we here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.velpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org support.